welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And this week I'm really pleased to be able to chat with author and educator Tanya Frank. Tanya has worked as a college and university lecturer in the UK and taught middle school children, teens and elders in the USA. She has also trained as a wildlife guide in California and has been an advocate for people with lived experience of psychosis. Tanya's work has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times and The Washington Post newspapers, as well as appearing in literary journals including KCET Departures and Sinister Wisdom. In this interview, we talk about Tanya's recently released book entitled Zigzag Boy, Madness, Motherhood and Letting Go, which chronicles the experiences of her son, Zach, who experienced psychosis as a 19-year-old. The book is a heartfelt and beautifully written account of dealing with mental distress and speaks movingly and honestly about the family's struggles with broken healthcare systems in the US and UK. Tanya, welcome. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me for the Madden America podcast. And uh, I'm really thrilled that we can get time to talk today. Thank you. I'm really thrilled to be here. It's an honor. So to get us underway, um, as mentioned in in the introduction, you're a trained teacher and lecturer. You've been a wildlife guide known as a, a docent. And most recently, you've been also an advocate for families with, with experience of psychosis. But we're here today to talk about your writing, and in particular, your latest book entitled Zigzag Boy, Motherhood, Madness and Letting Go. So I, I wondered if you could, for the listeners, kind of give us a flavor of the book and you know what it's about and what motivated you to write about your family's experiences. Sure, sure, Absolutely. The book actually covers a 10-year span um, in my life, and it's the journey um, that I took with my son from the moment of his first altered state, which is often known within the medical model as psychosis, um, up until the end of the pandemic. And we travel through America and the UK really in search of answers, in search of treatment, um, trying to fix this thing for the longest time until um, somewhere towards the end of the book when I realised that I need to try and grow into a sense of acceptance and ask some different questions um, rather than just be led solely by the biomedical model as seeing this thing as something rooted in the individual and, and something broken. So it intersperses this journey with my son through, you know, hospital and different kinds of treatments um, and different experiences. It intersperses that with an elephant seal colony where I worked as a docent, which was really my time and my space just away from this other world that was quite consuming. And it gave me time to think and to kind of reinvent myself a little bit It was completely off the grid, so nobody could reach me, which was very difficult at first. Um, But I think that the elephant seals, like a lot of things in nature, like a lot of creatures, were a metaphor for what Zach was going through. Um, So the mystery of this 
one of the largest, deepest diving marine mammals really reminded me in a lot of ways of the mystery of the brain. There was so much that couldn't be understood. And when the elephant seals had to leave their pups, it was really gave me a lot of food for thought about how I might step away a little bit from what was going on with Zach and what that meant. I have to say the book is um, deeply affecting uh, and beautifully written. And I, I really do encourage everyone listening to this to go out and get a copy and read it. So, you know, you mentioned the seals there. If someone had tried to get me to think previously about possible parallels between marine life and mental distress, I, I would have struggled. But your writing makes those connections seem so natural and, and meaningful. Thank you. Thank you. As you related there, Zach, um, seemingly out of the blue, started to struggle with um, unusual experiences. And you talk in the book about the way that Zach's diagnosis changed according to who he saw. And that seemed to shake your confidence in the system. So you used a brilliant phrase about your experience of the diagnosis process. You said, it's guesswork, trial and error, more like a game of spin the bottle than science. So I just wondered if you could tell us more about, you know, maybe what you were expecting from getting a diagnosis and you know how it how it actually worked out and what you feel about it well in the beginning when Zach first went into the hospital um, he came out with a diagnosis called psychosis NOS and the NOS stood for not otherwise specified which seemed really vague to me and it made it hard to understand quite what it would have meant I did some research um, and of course, it sort of led me to other terms and, and to really look at the idea of psychosis. But it really did seem like a label when people, when the clinicians weren't sure how to label something, that was something that was the label they used. And they said it could possibly be, you know, just one episode and might never happen again. It could be from the onset of marijuana and and if Zach could stop smoking, that it would diminish. So it really caused me a lot of time away from Zach, busy being distracted by trying to understand what this label meant and how it would affect him and affect all of us, rather than just kind of being with him and his distress. Um, and then, of course, the label changed over time. And that was interesting because sometimes he would be classified as having schizophrenia or paranoid schizophrenia or psychosis with depressive traits. Um, schizoaffective was the one that kind of seemed to stick for the longest. Um, but even now, sometimes I notice on reports that clinicians write different things and that seems like either they disagree between themselves or that actually it's not as important as long as it has sort of skits or schizoid or something of that kind of terminology within it that it's almost sort of like lumped into the same syndrome or disorder. You're, I think you're the only person that I've spoken to for this podcast that's experienced the mental health system both on, you know, on both sides of the Atlantic in the US and the UK. And so, you know, did did you find the approaches when you, you know, were taking Zach to, for treatment, did you find the, the approaches similar or, or very different? 
Um, I found them similar in some ways, but I also found them different in other ways. So um, in America, where the insurance, the health system is somewhat different um, and there is a lot more private health care. So people that are employed often have insurance through their employer. Uh, students have insurance through the university. Um, if you are quite poor, you know, if you are somebody who who isn't employed um, or or doesn't have insurance through employment, you have a different kind of insurance. You're insured through the state. And so there are different treatment programs and different hospitals, actually, depending on what kind of insurance you have. And it was very, very stark, the difference. So when Zach had insurance as a student, he was able to go to hospitals where they looked much cleaner. They weren't as crowded. He had his own space. I could visit more often. I could visit and sit by the side of his bed and go into a little cafeteria and have tea. So it seemed, I guess, a little more humane. Um, in the hospitals, when we did not have insurance, they felt much more like prison, even though I've never been inside an actual designated prison, it felt very prison-esque to me. I was never allowed to see where Zach was sleeping. Um, we met in a kind of canteen where there were almost like it felt like prison guards on duty that would stand and the visiting hours were much less and even the medication was different. So in the hospitals that were private, you were able to have medication that was in pill form. In the hospitals that were run by the state, they were more often about giving depots and they would also turn people out very quickly, um, often when they were in a worse state, to my mind, than when they went in or especially in our case when Zach was still very, very traumatised, they would do a depot injection and just release him and even if there wasn't, you know, for some people they would go be put in a taxi and go to Skid Row or to a homeless hostel. Um, so that felt quite different in a way to here in the UK where although Zach was uh, discharged into homeless accommodation, it was like a bed and breakfast type accommodation. And also he has now been in hospital for so long and the battle is about getting him out rather than asking for support and for more time or attention or help on the inside. It's actually about trying to get him out. So there are some similarities in terms of, um, I think, the reliance on drugs. I think the UK is moving very quickly in a similar fashion to the US in terms of pharmaceuticals being the first line of defence and also there's much more private insurance and private hospitals that are springing up to deal with mental health when the NHS doesn't have the funding or the capacity. So I think there are similarities in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And and also, you know, I wondered when, when you're over here in the UK, you know, it's, it's there's a, a part of the book where 
one of the mental health team says to you, unfortunately, Zach might have to get much worse before we can help him. And, you know, that's such a terrible place to put people into, isn't it? You know, Zach is probably not quite well enough to live unsupported on his own, but they're deeming him not ill enough to be in, in need of hospital treatment. That must have been a terrible place to be. Yeah, absolutely. So, so distressing. And I think for families to be in that position, the stress that it causes because your loved one is so vulnerable that you're really, you know, in a state a lot of the time of fear, especially, you know, for families that maybe I had the resources of, you know, I I wasn't homeless, I had enough money to be able to afford to accommodate Zach and I here. And we weren't facing, you know, some of the barriers that some of the population do face. And yet, even for us, it was excruciatingly difficult to know that to be helped, you, you know, had to really be in a place where you're about to throw yourself off a bridge or, you know, just be classified as being so dangerous to yourself or to others to qualify for that support. And then even when that support comes, it's about how medicalised it is that, you know, there's not really a sense to talk about it or to see it as a process But rather at that point, it's really about controlling somebody's behaviour and it's all about averting risk. So it felt like there's these two ends of the spectrum here. There's many, many people that are waiting to even see someone to talk about their grief or their trauma or their distress at one end and they wait and wait and wait. And then there's the other end of the spectrum for Zach and other families like ours where, you know, the the so-called illness is almost criminalised to the extent that somebody is kind of locked away and warehoused and it's very difficult to move them back into the community, which is, to my mind, the place where people can heal or recover or be with loved ones um, in a way that helps them most. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I'd also like to ask about the kind of complicated relationship that Zach had with his his prescribed drugs. So uh, he was given antipsychotics, but he seemed to struggle with them almost from the get-go. And it must have been quite hard to think that he was going to be helped by them and then then see him suffer the adverse effects. So I hope it's okay if if I read a little bit that he wrote in the book because it's so powerful. Sure. You say the pharmacist explains that the prescribed low starting dose of psychiatric drugs is apparently the norm. These are instructions to increase slowly to avoid side effects. So it surprises me when I awake the next day to find Zach perched on the edge of the couch with his knees bouncing up and down, his hands on them trying to still his movements. His eyes twitch and his tongue flicks in and out like the bearded dragon he kept as a boy. He walks around the house for no reason other than his mind and body won't let him be still. I feel like there's something inside of me, something trying to get out, he says, between lip-smacking bites. His distress makes my stomach lurch. I place my feet flat on the floor and brace myself to try and quell the effects of his dysentery legs. That's really, really tough to read, and I, I would imagine incredibly tough as a mother to see going on with your son. So, you know, I, I wondered, you know, there's, there's quite a lot. You write really well in the book about um, Zach's relationship with his drugs and, and his thoughts about them. So, But I wondered how you felt about how the drugs were used and whether they were helpful or, or not for Zach. 
It's an interesting question that and I think it's a really emotive one around the drugs because, of course, there are people that state that these drugs have have saved them and saved their lives. So, you know, I'm not talking for the entire population, but definitely for Zach, the drugs have never really helped him and, in fact, they have always seemed to harm him and... He now has Parkinsonian tremors that are so extensive from high doses of antipsychotics um, that, you know, he often can't sleep and it's very distressing to see that. Um, He also has uh, metabolic syndrome, which is very common for people that have been on antipsychotics for any length of time, which is um, high blood sugar, fatty liver, high blood pressure. It's often, you know, like the belly region. There's a lot of excess weight because the drugs can cause um, carbohydrate cravings and also a metabolizing of food in a very different way to those of us that aren't on those drugs. But in the beginning, I never realized that these drugs were so powerful and that if Zach refused them, he would often be labeled as non-compliant and again, seen not as somebody who was just ill, but somebody who was quite deviant because he didn't want to comply. And then when the drugs didn't work, he was often labelled treatment resistant, but still given the drugs. So it was kind of confusing to me that if something isn't working and if it's harming somebody, that there wasn't any measure to try and look at stopping, reducing, tapering, uh, trying, you know, maybe some talk therapy. It just seemed such a simple analogy in my mind, but it's very, very hard to find doctors who taper in a way that's safe enough for somebody to be able to come off the medicine. And the higher the dose and the longer somebody remains on it, the more difficult it can be to actually stop those drugs just because of the dependence, the the physiological reliance and the way that the drugs can actually change the brain. In the beginning, I really trusted the doctors because why shouldn't I? I was brought up to trust doctors and I thought that the medicine would be a, a cure. And so it shocked me. And I remember a psychiatrist very, very, you know, adamantly saying to us, you have to keep on with these drugs. And if you stop, you will end up in the hospital. And that was such a strong message. And it made us really frightened about Zach having to go back to the hospital. So I would often try to force, you know, I would really try just to Almost, I was another coercive element in saying, you know, we have to keep going. We have to trust the doctors. You have to take this medicine. And, uh, you know, I think in retrospect, I do feel like I wish I had given Zach and our family a chance to try some other options. Because I think once somebody is exposed to the kind of trauma and the kind of long-term drugging that 
Zach has experienced, I think it becomes much more complicated and much harder to find that place. I don't know what you might call it, a baseline, a return to some sort of semblance of of joy and autonomy as a human, because I think it's more messy and you're unpicking a lot more than when you first started with this human distress, this human thing that all of us as beings go through in our lifetimes. Thank you for sharing that. And it also struck me in, in reading the book that actually Zach had incredible insight into the drugs that he he was taking for his condition. You know, at one point he 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 tells his girlfriend Savannah that when he when he takes his prescribed drugs, he feels numb inside. He feels dead, and if he feels dead, he may as well as well be dead. And the experience of psychosis is at least one with feelings as extreme as they are. He knows he's alive in this state, and that that really struck me because what what one of the things that befalls people that sadly struggle with mental distress is at some point they get labeled that they lack insight into their own condition and yet here is zach with perfect into insight into he either feels sedated and disconnected on the drugs but when he is hearing his voices or having his, his experiences at least he knows he's in touch with the real world yes yeah absolutely um and there is a medicalized term for this lack of insight as well anisognosia and you know people that totally believe in it and write about it and espouse this notion um that you know there is this lack of insight and if only somebody can develop insight and take their medicine as it's prescribed that they will get better and live happily ever after. I think my aha moment when I started questioning some of these ideas was when we met a psychologist in Northern California. Um, It was some years into Zach's journey and she had been given the same diagnosis as Zach and she also spoke about how she felt so numb, just like Zach did, that she really was, you know, willing to end her life because there was no quality of life. So she started to taper, she started to go down on the meds herself because there were no doctors that would support her. So she did the work. I think she got in touch with Will Hall and his project, but there were some people that were really looking at ways of tapering and so very 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 slowly she did this and she weighed and measured and she finally managed to taper and she was helping other people to make that choice if they wanted to Um, and she was really the first person just seeing her in her role and in all of her sort of humanness um, that made me just think that this was possible and then I met more and more survivors ex-psychiatric survivors and was introduced to hearing voices movement and open dialogue and ways for Zach to connect with peers rather than have to you know take authority from doctors or you know people that he was quite at that by that point quite suspicious of and quite you know afraid of um and I think that gave me a whole new body of knowledge and just another viewpoint to see Zach's experience 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the medical model is only one way of seeing these experiences, isn't it? And as you say, once you discover there are other ways of seeing it, it for some people, not all, but for some people, it becomes a, less, a bit less terrifying and a bit less scientific and confusing. And, you know, also, you quite rightly say in the book that, again, not for everyone and not wanting to romanticize it because hearing voices, having visions is terrifying for some people, but some other people develop a relationship with their voices and don't see them as threatening. So it doesn't need to always be uh, following the medical model, does it? No, absolutely not. And uh, I think that we do try to have this, you know, everybody fitting into a certain category or, you know, uh, round pegs into square holes or square pegs into round holes, whatever the expression is, you know, not everybody is the same. We are very diverse and we come into this world and we live for this world with such diverse experiences. And I think that it's really good that there is more attention now to neurodiversity. I do feel like it's something that I hear and read more about. Um, and I also think there is a little bit more attention on stories like ours, which feels really hopeful. But I also at times think that it is a hard battle because the pharmaceutical industry and the psychiat you know, the psychiatric model definitely has a lot of money and a lot of heft and a lot of power. And so it's um you need i think you need your kin to actually walk through this choice if you know if you are going to take away some of these layers and look a little bit deeper about what might have happened to someone rather than what is wrong with them i think to have a tribe to do that with is really important and i have i have that i'm really lucky that i do have that I have a group of other parents that I can reach out to and talk to. And they're also incredibly smart and well-resourced. And one of them used to work as a social worker and one used to work as a psychiatric nurse and one is an academic. And I think it's almost like a hive mind where it's not just about being sad or you know, being worried or trying to get through a tribunal. It's actually about really looking at some of the laws and the things that are very hard to understand in the system that are quite bureaucratic and still quite archaic. So to have a team to help you through that, I think is really, really beneficial. I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Tanya. Um, I'd like to go on in a minute, if it's okay to talk about reaction to the book. But, but before we get there, if it's okay, I just wanted to know, how, you know, how is Zach doing now, and how are you doing now? You know, I, I'm after having read the book. You know, I'm really, really would love to know how things have changed for you recently. Sure, there was a lot of anticipation for this book because it took me a long time to write, and I felt extremely vulnerable when the book came out it felt you know really like being quite naked out there suddenly you know it was not just any memoir but it was a very sensitive memoir and I also you know worried a little bit about Zach as well both of us you know being quite exposed um, but it was also a very exciting time and I felt like it was empowering us to be able to have a voice that 
went a little bit further um, and a voice that was heard because I often feel that my voice isn't really heard and Zach's voice has been so silenced that quite often he doesn't even talk. He actually has stopped talking at all because I think he feels that his if he talks about his voices or if he talks about feeling hopeless or wanting to die, I think the response is one that actually disempowers him further. So I think one learns very quickly in that um, situation to just, you know, be silent. So, yeah, so it was very exciting. It had taken a long time. I had a launch party and I had so much support and um, also it has led to discussion. You know, I had a lot of articles come out both sides of the pond and the book was reviewed in the New York Times, which felt very prestigious to be able to have that attention. I'm kind of thinking that this book might be one that touches some people's hearts rather than a book that becomes a bestseller. And so I'm really learning to accept that and have some gratitude around that. And I've had a lot of emails back and messages about how the book has touched people, how their experience is similar. And I've been able to also support them, guide them towards uh, some of the groups that I belong to so that they too can have a voice and benefit from some of those campaigns and some of that advocacy. Yeah, absolutely. I hope it does become a bestseller. And you know, if I were a if I were a parent with a a child or a partner or anything who was struggling with some of these experiences, this is exactly the kind of book that I would like to read. Because while you don't pull any punches, um, and you do describe you know the real severe difficulties that Zach has, that you have as a family coming to terms with it, but also you describe how haphazard the treatment is. And, you know, how sometimes the treatment lacked compassion and, and, you know, lacked seeing Zach as a person. It was, you know, kind of a tick box exercise. But also there's so much hope in the book in terms of different routes for help and all the rest of it. So, I, you know, I, um, you know, I read it once to do the podcast and now I'm reading it again, but from a parent's perspective, you know, more slowly and, and taking time. And it's, it's powerful and it's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I, I wondered if it's okay to, um, I'm sure so many people will get a huge amount from reading the book, and I certainly did, but um, not naming names, there was a certain psychiatrist in the UK who, you wrote a piece for The Guardian, which was excellent as well, which which we'll give a link to, and um, a, a, a psychiatrist on Twitter made a quite a telling comment, he referred to it as anti-psychiatry spin, you know, which I thought was quite a telling comment really because when you know reading the honest heartfelt uh, reflections of a mother on her treatment by mental health services you know they, they can't even look to improving what they provide rather than giving a diminishing response like that so you know I was, I was really sad to see that yeah yeah me too actually um part of me maybe even expected that as as cruel and cutting as it was um just because i think there is such a defensiveness um on the part of you know not all psychiatrists but many psychiatrists and i think that my narrative was perhaps just 
something that was too challenging and would have caused a lot of reflection on their part. And that reflection could probably be painful, I'm sure. Um, and so I think it's very easy to just dismiss somebody and to, to say that they are anti-psychiatry. And um, rather than looking at the fact that actually I'm, I'm not anti-psychiatry I'm anti the effects the the very difficult effects of these drugs the iatrogenic effects of these drugs and some of the ways in which psychiatry can work to take away somebody's autonomy and that is my personal story um and I think that to you know to to use that label as well sort of brings back you know harps on this idea of you know the 1960s and psychedelics and rd lang and you know this whole kind of um idea of rebellion and that's not who i am and that's not who i can be even in this time but yeah i think that to withstand those kinds of comments again if you're in the field and you're practicing or you're preaching some way that's deemed as alternative I think to be in your camp with others that can make you feel safe is really important it's been such a pleasure to talk about your book you know I, I honestly recommend readers to go out and get a copy you know it's it's thought-provoking it's heartfelt it's powerful it's it's beautiful in parts it's savage in other parts you know the the parallels between your experiences and marine life are you know really quite stunning and I think it's so important that we share personal experience in this way because otherwise we do only apply a medical lens and you know, for people out there struggling with exp these experiences, we do need to make people aware that there are alternatives and different ways of looking at this. And we, we don't necessarily have to collude with the medical model as it's kind of presented to us. So I think you do a fantastic job of talking really openly about all that. So thank you. Thank you so much, James. I appreciate it. It's been wonderful to just be able to have this conversation with you. And so I'd just like to thank Tanya so much for taking the time to chat with me for the podcast. If you'd like to know more about Tanya and her work, her website is tanyafrank.com. And here you can find links to order her excellent book, Zigzag Boy. So as always, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.